As you find Luke 24, I want to give you some explanation of what we're going to study this morning and why my goal is to give you a brief overview of what's called biblical theology. And that term, if that term seems confusing or repetitive, you're just going to have to give me a few minutes to explain it in a moment. But for now, let me just say that it is seeing the entire Bible as telling one big story. Biblical theology is seeing the entire Bible as telling one big story. I know biblical theology sounds like we're saying, well, you know, our theology is biblical and what we believe is right. And it can be, it's a term that sometimes is used that way, but in a greater sense, biblical theology means seeing the entire Bible as telling one big story. And there's a couple of reasons I want to go this direction this morning. First off, in our series on the church and church membership, biblical theology is something that's more important than we imagine it to be. There is this very good book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and I'd be glad to provide it to any of you who are interested in reading it, but it identifies nine essential traits of healthy churches. It talks about, you know, a genuinely saved church membership or clear gospel emphasis. It talks about a biblical view of leadership and church discipline. Expository preaching is one of their nine marks. But one of their nine marks uh, of a healthy church is a good understanding of biblical theology. A healthy church sees the entire Bible as telling one big story. The other reason I want to deal with this this morning is that it might prove helpful later on today. The second service, we're going to dive into the last half of Matthew chapter 2, and we'll see that Matthew is writing from a conviction that all scripture is telling one big story and Jesus is who that story is about. Luke 24, we're going to start at verse 13. It says, now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed in reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early 
astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter to, into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. On one unusually warm day in January 2007, there was this young man named Joshua Bell, who emerged alone from a train station in central Washington, D.C. He was wearing a baseball cap to go along with his t-shirt and jeans, and he carried a violin case, which he proceeded to open, left on the ground facing the pedestrian traffic along the sidewalk in hopes of getting some charitable attention from those who were passing by. This kind of thing is known as busking. For about 45 minutes, he played several pieces of classical music on his violin. Nick Roark and Robert Klein tell this story in their book about biblical theology. They very little of the rush hour foot traffic that was going by even slowed down. They did not know that Joshua Bell was a world-famous classical musician. In fact, right now, I think he's scheduled for Hamburg, Germany. But if you want to see him next spring in Chicago, you can. Just plan on spending several hundred dollars per ticket. They certainly didn't recognize that he was playing time-tested masterpieces of music on a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin that was worth $4 million. And because they were not expecting such a glorious opportunity... Thousands of people just kept walking by. Something similar often happens when we read our Bibles because we're happy to open up Scripture and just put in our time or we're comfortable or maybe even stuck in our preconceived notions of what we're reading is all about. We can miss the beautiful symphony of Scripture. If I asked you, is the Bible one book? Is the Bible two books? Is the Bible 66 books? You could honestly answer yes to all those questions. The, the Bible is 66 books written in different languages by numerous men on, with various purposes. The Bible is also two books. There is the Old Testament and the New Testament, and yet the Bible is a single book. It is the revelation of God's gracious plan of salvation. It is a story from God, inspired by God, and about what God is doing. A healthy church upholds this truth about Scripture, that in the Bible there are many stories, but all of them are telling us a portion of the single story of God's gracious plan for redemption, accomplished in the person and work of Jesus his Son. The assurance of a Savior was clear in the Old Testament. The patriarchs 
received that promise. The prophets foretold his birth and his character and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. Psalmists sung praises about their hope in God's salvation. Over the course of time, some of the biblical revelation came through visions. Some came through the the audible voice of God speaking. Moses got the revelation through a burning bush. Abraham spoke directly with Yahweh as he stood with him in the door of his tent. Balaam heard through a mule. Daniel through dreams. Jacob heard by wrestling with God all through the night. All of those events of Scripture are revelation of God, about the coming revelation of God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes this. At the very beginning of his book, the writer of Hebrews says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. There are many times and many ways where God has spoken to people, but all of that revelation is aimed at the ultimate message coming through the ultimate messenger. Whether we're reading about Abraham or Adam or Balaam or Boaz or Moses or Melchizedek, we must keep in mind how they each play a part in the grand unfolding story of redemption that is about Jesus Christ, God's Son. We might refer to this as reading Scripture with a Christ-centered perspective. And if we fail to do this, if we get so preoccupied by the small story that we lose sight of the big story, then we're going to be prone to misunderstanding what it is that we're reading. So let me give you sort of a classic example. You can read the story of David and Goliath and come away from it with the idea of it being like a morality tale. Like if you were brave enough like David, or you were bold enough like David, if you would just trust God like David, then you'll be able to go out and slay all of the giants in your life. And telling that story that way can be fun. But what we've done in the process is we've lost sight of the bigger picture, right? I could preach that story that way and it would maybe be inspiring. Y'all would probably enjoy it. The problem is that makes it about you and me, or at best it makes it just about David. But the Bible is telling us the story of Jesus. And we miss it there in stories like that because we're like people walking down the street past the violinist Joshua Bell, and we're ignoring him because we already have everything planned out in our minds, like here's how this goes. When we read about David and Goliath and read ourselves into the story, it's because that's what we were expecting when we came to the story. But it's not about me and you. All Scripture points us to Jesus. Did you know that little boy David, whom God used to save his people from their enemy, grows up to be king? That 
King David, for all of his failures, was called a man after God's own heart, and he has promised a distant descendant, the son of David, who would come and bring salvation for God's people. And so just maybe, if we read ourselves into the story of David and Goliath, we can find ourselves there. We're the soldiers standing on the hillside, quaking in our sandals because we've been confronted by an enemy that we can't defeat, and we desperately need the son of David to come and defeat our enemies for us, to fight our battles for us. In our text in Luke 24, you'll see at the beginning of the chapter how this is unfolding, that Jesus has been crucified. He, he had come to rescue his people, but, and he died on the cross. He was buried. He, in verse 1, some women came to his tomb, but verse 2 describes that they, they found the stone rolled away. The, the body of Jesus is missing. They don't yet understand the resurrection of the Messiah. So they are in verse 4. It describes them as just greatly perplexed. And two angels appear and remind them, Of the words of Jesus, look at verse 5. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So, beginning in our text, (coughs) verse 13, the scene shifts. There are... Two disciples of Jesus walking down the road out of Jerusalem to this village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And can you put yourself into the mind of these disciples as they are just sadly wandering out of the city? Now, it's tempting to read this and say, well, they didn't know about the resurrection. But that's not true. We just read that they did know. And we'll see down in verses 19 through 24. They tell the same story that Luke just tells at the beginning of the chapter. They know the tomb is empty. They, they know that there has been an angelic vision promising Jesus is alive. They just don't believe it. Now, that doesn't make them unbelievers. This was typical of disciples at that moment in time. All they know is that they loved Jesus. And I say that in the past tense because in their minds, Jesus is gone forever. They were ready to follow him with their entire lives, but he was betrayed and arrested and flogged and condemned and crucified and buried. And now they think all their hope is gone. We only know the name of one of these disciples down in verse 18. It's Cleopas. And so it's very possible that these two disciples walking down the road are Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas, or maybe it's Cleopas and another man. We just don't know. It doesn't much matter. We know that both of them are disciples, and they are both, at this point in time, absolutely wrecked. All of their hope and love and faith was in Jesus the Messiah. And now it seems like it is completely destroyed. And they're asking each other, no doubt, like, were we wrong about him? How could we have been wrong? And if we weren't wrong, if he really is the the Messiah God promised, then how is it that things have gone so wrong? This is Luke's description in verses 14 through 16. They walk together together. 
or they talked together of these things which had happened, so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so they did not know him. They're, they're talking together. Luke describes it as conversing and reasoning. They're trying to make sense of everything that's happened, but they can't. And if they could, if they could make sense of everything that happened, they would not be walking away from Jerusalem at this point. They would be staying back in Jerusalem waiting to see Jesus. But instead, they're on their way, presumably, back home. In many accounts, when Jesus appears after his resurrection, the disciples don't recognize him. And we wonder why, you know, did he look so different? So is it just because they weren't expecting to see him? Maybe it's the depth of their sorrow as they're walking down the road that they're hardly paying attention. On this occasion, Luke doesn't let us wonder He says it's God's plan. In verse 16, their eyes were restrained. They were literally kept from recognizing the Lord Jesus walking with them. So they think this is just a a passing stranger who is asking them, hey, why is it that you're so sad? To them, at this point in time, Jesus is just the violinist on the sidewalk, right? They're not interested. They, they are not going to be interrupted from what they've already planned. And so he says to them in verse 17, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? By the way, is Jesus asking this question because he doesn't know the answer? Well, of course not. He knows exactly what they're talking about. He knows everything about them. He knows why they're sad. He is asking, I think, because as the story unfolds, it gives them a chance to explain their heart and their mind for us. Jesus knows what they're thinking, but until he asks this and has them say it, we don't know what it is that they're thinking. But we get to find out. Verse 18 One of those whose name was Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, and uh, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Y'all, this is a, this is quite a conversation that's unfolding here. One, one writer about this noted how ironic it is that Cleopas gets to be known throughout history as the individual who incredulously, incredulously asks Jesus, like, do you know about the crucifixion? Don't you know all the things that have been happening? And Jesus plays along like, what things? Tell me about it. And Cleopas explains the death of Jesus and here's where we find out what it is that's in their hearts. Verse 21, we were hoping, right? You see, this is past tense. All of their hope is past. We were hoping that it was he that was going to redeem Israel. And they go on to say and explain all of those events of the resurrection. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. 
Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of us who were certain of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman women had said, but they did not see him. See what I mean? They they know all about the resurrection. They know the women went to the tomb and they found it empty and there was the angelic vision telling them Jesus is alive. They even know that two of the apostles, Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it empty. Right? They confirmed the story. The problem is not that they are ignorant of the facts. It was that they... If the problem was that they didn't know then informing them would have been enough. The problem isn't ignorance, it's spiritual. It isn't a head problem, it's a heart problem. And here's how this relates to biblical theology. Jesus is about to properly scold these two. There's really no other way to say it. He's going to call them foolish and slow-hearted. Not slow-minded, but slow-hearted. He doesn't scold them because they refuse to believe the resurrection evidence. He doesn't scold them because they, they thought that maybe the women were wrong and, and they didn't really see what they thought they saw. They, he doesn't scold them for not recognizing him right away because obviously there's a purpose in that. What Jesus scolds them for is reading Scripture without embracing the big picture of Scripture. Listen to verse 25 and 26. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now let's stop for a minute and ask this question. Based on what you know about Cleopas and his friend, Did they believe the Bible? I think we would have to say yes, absolutely. If you had asked them about Scripture and they would have had only the Old Testament at that point, but if you had asked, what do you believe about Scripture, I'm sure they would have assured you, this is God's Word. It is God's Word to us. It's inspired. It's perfect. Verse 21 even tells us that they know enough about Scripture and believe it that they had all their hopes pinned on Jesus being the promised Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel. So don't read about Cleopas and his friend as if they don't know the Bible or that they don't believe the Bible. They know it They believe it. The problem is that they had been reading Scripture in a way that was not allowing it to challenge their preconceived notions. And as a result, all they ever found in Scripture is exactly what they expected to find when they went. They're reading it looking for promises like, you know, the Messiah is going to be the Redeemer of Israel. But all the long All the way along, they are ignoring that symphony of Scripture that was calling to them as they passed by. Listen, you don't have to accept my words for this. It's Jesus who calls them foolish and slow-hearted, verse 25, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Specifically, verse 26, that the Christ, the Messiah, ought to suffer, enduring the very 
condemnation and suffering and death that they just described before entering into his glory. They needed to read scripture and see Jesus all through it and not just sort of cherry pick the messages that they liked, but to embrace it holistically. That the Redeemer of Israel would suffer and die and rise again to save his people. So what is it that they were missing? It's tempting for us to, to come here and say, well, okay, what they're missing is that they know Scripture so well, but they've missed some one little passage, some one obscure verse and some minor prophet that would have decoded the whole story for them. Oh, you guys, you, you missed Second Hesitations chapter 3, verse 42. No, it wasn't some obscure, overlooked thing that they were missing. Listen to what Jesus does, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. What is it that they had been missing? Well, Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible. All the prophets, that's another 17 books. And then all of Scripture, that's everything else. And what follows has to be one of the greatest Bible studies ever. Jesus expounded to them from Moses and the prophets and all of Scripture, he expounded to them. That is, he expressed, he explained it, he brought it out, he exposited from the beginning to end all of the Scripture. And all of the Scripture is telling them about him. So what's this tell us about Jesus' view of Scripture? Well, one thing it tells us is that Jesus is the only human being to ever read scripture and be right in concluding that this is all about me there is one hero of the bible and that is jesus and until we read all of scripture with that christ-centered perspective we're liable to misread the bible from a self-centered perspective this also tells us that jesus intends for his disciples to know their bibles there is this strange tragedy within Christian circles today where disciples of Jesus would dare say, I wish God would speak to me, and then they never open this book to read what it is that God has to say to them. God has spoken. Open this book and you will find that God has spoken at various times in various ways throughout Scripture to the point where he has finally communicated by sending us the very Son of God that he had promised. Jesus intends for you to know this book from beginning to end. It tells many stories, but all the stories are ultimately part of one overarching story of Scripture that God has graciously saved his people by the life, death, and resurrection of Messiah Jesus. And when you read Scripture from that Christ-centered perspective, you'll find the Bible isn't about you, but it will change you. Look at verse 32. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? These two disciples went from slow-hearted sadness to having their hearts set on fire by the word being opened in their eyes and seeing it from a Christ-centered perspective. We should read the Bible from beginning to end 
seeing the story of Jesus. He is the creator in Genesis. He's the very Lord God who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He is the Passover lamb in Exodus. He's the, he is the one who shed his blood so that throughout all history, God would see his blood and pass over us. He's the giver of the law and the content of the law. He is the fulfillment, the only fulfillment of the law. Just like Joshua, his namesake in the Old Testament. He is the leader who's taking us to the promised land. It's him who's made every psalm worth singing. He's what the prophets promised. He's that son of David who's come to save us miserably hopeless people from the enemy that we could never face ourselves. We can read in the New Testament about his birth and his life and his teaching and his love and his death and his resurrection and the promise of his return. All scripture is about Jesus. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Now, we need to know this as individuals, and we also need to know this and embrace this as a church. A healthy church embraces biblical theology, that that overarching story of Scripture is telling us about God's gracious salvation provided through His Son, Jesus. I can say with certainty that a healthy church believes this because Luke chapter 24 doesn't just tell us the story from the perspective of these two disciples walking down the road. Immediately, almost an identical story gets unfolded for the whole church. You know Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission, right? That the church is to declare the gospel of Jesus to the nations. Well, Luke's gospel ends the same way. Verses 33 through 43 tells us that these two disciples, after recognizing that it's Jesus who they've been talking with, go running back the seven miles to Jerusalem in order to tell the rest of the church. And in verse 33, it calls them gathered together. And Jesus appears to that church confirming what Cleopas and his friend had told them. Listen to what Jesus says as he addresses the whole assembly, starting at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the Great Commission, right? That's Luke's record of the Great Commission. But do you realize the, the churches, they're told to go to all the nations and telling them about Jesus, the way he describes it here is not just you go tell everybody about your personal experience with Jesus. It's here. Go tell everybody, here is this book, and it's all about Jesus. 
right? He opened their understanding that they would understand Scripture and says, here's why it is written, and this is why it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and that repentance and remission would be preached through the whole nations. This book, it tells us why it is we need a Savior. It tells us that God has promised a Savior. It proves that Jesus is that Savior. And that's the good news the church is to be proclaiming. Biblical theology is the basis of gospel proclamation. Listen, Jesus intends for us to know God's Word. But if we read it without a Christ-centered perspective, we're going to miss the big picture. A healthy church embraces biblical theology, that the many stories of Scripture are parts of one big story, the story of God's gracious salvation provided through His Son, Jesus. We have to read Scripture with that Christ-centered perspective.